0: Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to The Daily Evolver. Today I am here with my integral buddy and comrade, Steve McIntosh. Hey Steve, how are you doing? Hi Jeff, pleasure to be with you again, as always. Yeah. And today Steve and I are going to talk about something that really has been a project for both of us for a long time. For me, it feels like a lifelong project, and that is integrating the two great spiritual paths that, in my case, that I I was raised Christian and I... Have been a Buddhist practitioner for decades, and a serious one for a long time, and how that fits in, because of course, both of those doctrines sort of deny the other. And yet for me, as I've often said, I can't imagine my life without both God and emptiness. Mm -hmm. And that's really been a rich practice for me. And you have really helped me uh, integrate those two through your scholarship and your books, and through the work we're doing together, so I'd like to hear your story too, and and tell them about the the current project we're working on. Sure, sure.
1: Well, and let me say um, all the ways that you've helped me and our friendship, and the dialogues, and the way we're kind of on this path together. My story is that I was not, not rela- raised in any kind of tradition. Uh, you know, my father was an atheist, my mother was agnostic, but. Um, At a young age, I began being attracted to what we now call New Age spirituality, right? Progressive spirituality in the 70s. And I was interested in a wide range of of spiritual truth and teachings and and explored a lot of them, but was drawn increasingly toward the panentheistic side, you know, or or the God side, even though, again, I don't identify myself as a Christian or as associated with any organized religion, Mm -hmm. the panentheistic. Path has been my primary focus.
0: And what's the quick definition of that?
1: Well, uh, panentheism is the idea that, that spirit is both uh, imminent in the world, inside of us, inside of everything, that the world is spirit and spirit is the world. But there's also an element of, of spiritual reality or ultimate reality that transcends the finite universe. There's something transcendent about it that contains and encompasses, you know, both from withholding it from within and containing it from without. And the word that's most often associated uh, with this transcendent element in the panentheistic uh, understanding is God. Mm -hmm. But there are are forms of panentheism which don't directly acknowledge a a traditionally theistic God like you find in in Christianity or Judaism or Baha'i or, you know, Islam. But um, panentheism is is a sophisticated form of of theological understanding of ultimate reality that's not simply christianity and it's not simply buddhism um it is a, uh, a kind of an integration of those yeah. things but it's still kind of if we're contrasting it in the discussion we're about to have we could say there's panentheism which recognizes transcendence and then there's pantheism which is more of a non-dual recognition of yeah. there's only one thing so you don't need to posit a transcendent element
0: right yeah well it it, it seems very attractive to integralists. I mean, it, it, it seems like the people I know in the integral world really, I mean, we, it's, I'll speak for myself, I want it all. I mean, if there's a spiritual truth out there, I want to make sure that I have it and I have it, you know, and I'm working with it and I'm integrating it. Otherwise, it just doesn't feel complete. And one of the great privileges that you and I have is, uh, you know, some position of leadership in the integral community and, you know, living here in Boulder in our little integral campus and the Boulder Integral Center down the street. And we have done a number of programs there. Uh, and this summer we're going to do a program called the Integral Incubator. And we're making this, uh, this theme of integrating theism and the non-dual is really the theme of the incubator. And I'm excited about that and excited to be working with other integralists on developing a real path forward that is not just a you know, cafeteria mixture, but a true integration. And that's where, again, you've been so helpful in your thinking about this. So maybe share a little bit about how you see the integration of these two great human spiritual insights.
1: Sure, sure. Well, in The Presence of the Infinite, my 2015 book, I uh, developed this theme quite a bit. And explore how uh, a post New Age appreciation of different spiritual paths that welcomes and is respectful of different uh, different paths, but at the same time can integrate it can, it can bring on not only support but a, a kind of a healthy challenge where you know different kinds of spirituality can challenge each other in a way that is difficult to do within the the cultural mores right. you know, of progressive spirituality, right? So, in, in other words. Welcoming pluralism is a very important accomplishment of progressive spirituality that that you know creates a bright, bright line beyond the traditional level where there's still heavy exclusivity. They may yes. be interested in dialogue, but there's still a kind of a uh, the, the level of integration where one side can actually be incorporated more into the other hasn't been fully reached. Although there's some you know pioneers we could point to, but in the book I begin to talk about how when we really examine, especially with an integral perspective, the world body of spiritual teachings, spiritual practices, and most importantly, spiritual experience itself, there, I think, is a, a really strong argument that, these, that, that teachings, practices, and experience can be recognized as naturally dividing into two major fields or two major kinds. I, I use the term from uh, chaos theory, attractor basins of spiritual experience, which I label very loosely and you know, try to define the non-dual attractor basin of spiritual experience and practice, and this theistic or panentheistic attractor basin. And why this analogy of tra- attractor basins is is useful is that uh, that there's this entire realm, you know, starting with the non-dual, of unitive experiences that practitioners of, of meditation or other non-dual practices can have, practices which are have a non-dual flavor or or they they are exploring levels of non-dual experience. But in this attractor basin, there's a sort of a a point of maximum depth, right? a peak experience, which has been reported by practitioners in the realm of non-dual spirituality, both Buddhism and Hinduism and many of the mystical traditions from other paths, that these practitioners describe this samadhi experience, right? Or it's known um, in the academic literature as the unitive experience. And while there are differing reports of the, the stages that lead to that, or, you know, there's not, you can't use comparative mysticism like a science. But I think we can conclude that this, this samadhi experience is relatively universal, and that it, it is something that, can, that some natural mystics can experience effortlessly, but for most of us, this um, peak experience of non duality is something that comes from practice, right? Yeah. Dedicated practice, especially meditation. So that's a very interesting um, appreciation of this field of spiritual experience, which non duality and the bringing of it into the West and the exploration of it within progressive culture has really demonstrated well. So, an important lesson from this non dual practice experience teachings realm. Is how there's a kind of a mirror, not exactly, not a perfect mirror, but a, a very similar kind of field of spiritual experience that's found on this um, this the more uh, theistic Christian Judaism side, and this one has its own practices, faith, you know, communing with the presence of God, prayer. All these practices it's are time tested, right? And they're not merely mythic level practices, as right. I argue in the book. Um, you know, Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity. Judaism, all the great lineages of the world are indeed lines that, although most of them are rooted at the traditional level, can be seen to grow through the modernist, the postmodern, and now that, that these lines are growing into the integral, we can see something new and say something more about each of them because we yeah. can bring them into relationship in a way that they can kind of true each other up, yeah. right? So just a little bit more on this theistic attractor basin of spiritual experience the apogee or maximum depth point within this field, I think, with a, for lack of a better term, we could describe it as the love of God. You know, the the, yes. the being beheld and and indeed held yes. by the higher self that is within you, that's connected to every other higher self. You know, the ultimate reality, the the, the splinter of divinity that lives within inside of us. Yes. That element of us which we are doing our best to you know become one with, has a love for us as individuals which is its own completely profound experience. And while the experience of mystical or even non-mystical experience of the love of God and the experience of, of non-dual oneness, while there's overlap, while they, in some ways they're the same thing, in other ways they're not. Right. And, and that's part of the good news, yeah. is that because they are complementary, they both challenge and support each other, um, that's where we could begin to discover the opportunity to, um, to develop a new Uh, integral level practice whereby um, we can, if if we think about a yin-yang symbol, you know, at the heart of the black wave is the white dot and and the white wave is the black dot. And so even though on the non-dual side, we can find love. And if you're on the black side, you can find the white in the middle. But even though each side can in a sense be appreciated and be complete on its own, Mm -hmm. its own fulsome path, there's also ways in which these other, that going beyond polite spiritual pluralism, to actually recognize that this theistic path can can deepen the practice of a non-dual path in ways that strictly sticking to the non-dual side may not be able to, well, and, that's, and vice
0: versa. That, that has been my experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was raised at, at the traditional level, traditional Christianity, mythic uh, Christianity, right. and uh, right on schedule as a teenager, I became modern and scientific, and I became an atheist and a materialist. And then I moved to Boulder and Boulder green good old Green Boulder. I became a cafeteriaist. I mean, I was doing everything. Right. And then got into the, you know, really terrific uh, Buddhist community, Tibetan Buddhist community here and did serious uh, study and, and spiritual practice in that lineage. And you know, there was a lot of good experimentation happening with the Buddhists here. And the rope is a very, you know, proto-integral uh, institution in many ways, but still the doctrines denied each other. Mm -hmm. You know, Buddhism denied that there's even a need for a God. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, to go back to Christianity and talk about emptiness or anything like that would just, you know, get you cast out. So for me, what happened was that my Buddhist practice, and, and I think this is what you're talking about, is my Buddhist practice, you know, made me a bigger, more aerated person. And my, my identity literally grew. I was uh, able to hold more. Mm-hmm. And and then there's all the work that you do on illumination and just the feeling of the world being lit up, particularly in Tibetan Buddhism. That's sort of an re-enchantment of the world right. that happens in advanced Tibetan Buddhism. And it's like that expanded sense of Jeff, Jeff, was able then to it's it's like it was inevitable. It was irresistible. God, the love of God just flowed right back in there, yes. you know. That God I had denied, that mythic God in the sky. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I'm sure. still grown beyond that, of course. But the love of God, no, I, yeah, it's, it's real. It's, it's real, yeah. and it came back. And you know, it's it's they're they're sort of both self self authenticating in a way. I mean, when I talked about meditation making me bigger. The world's more enchanted. I'm a better person. I'm a kinder person. I'm a more effective person. The love of God also makes me a more stalwart person and a, a person with more, more calm, feel like I'm being lived, that there's something bigger than me that's animating me. And they're just delicious together, everybody.
1: Yeah. Well, as I was traveling around the country on my recent book tour for The Presence of the Infinite*. Uh, I talk a little bit in the presentations and in answering the questions about this practice of, of practicing these two poles together. In other words, um, one of the it's important to say just by way of background before we kind of loop back to how we're applying this. And that is this recognition of the two major kinds of spirituality, you know, non-dual and theistic, this isn't just my crazy idea. I mean this has been well established by a whole host of very, Distinguished um, academic uh, philosophers and theologians, such as Hans Küng or John Hick or um, Sao Abe, as part of the Kyoto School, so it's well recognized. But what Integral can bring to this that Kant is, is not as easily seen at the sort of the modernist level of professional academic philosophy is this way in which these two major kinds of, of spiritual experience are related to each other in an interdependent. Uh, existential polarity right, right? And, and so it's it, what what brings this alive and makes it a practice that's not just theology for your mind but but something that can really deepen your spiritual experience at an existential level is this integral overlay of the dynamic relationship which is an interdependent polarity. Right, so we've talked about polarity theory on previous, uh, you know, podcasts that we've done. Very, very helpful to me. Right, and so the basic idea is that there are certain kinds of polarities that are good and bad, right? But Mm -hmm. there are other kinds of polarities that are that are good and good, right? Positive, positive polarities, and
0: like male and female,
1: well, or freedom and order, or mercy and justice, or support and challenge, or competition and cooperation. These are these positive, positive polarities as I argue in the book, reflect the larger structure of reality, you know, being and becoming, you know, absolute and relative, infinite and finite.
0: They're but, just sort of built in.
1: Well, right. They're fractally distributed in, 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 into reality. Cool, reality man. is made up by like it because these, these positive, positive polarities are engines of evolution. So what we can begin to notice as we appreciate a deeper integral philosophy of value is that both values themselves and things that create value have a tendency to cohere in polar sets. So they're like two legs, right? That is competition and cooperation is the classic example I usually use. And because cooperation is certainly to be preferred, but without a degree of individual excellence and creativity, cooperate with the value-creating potentials of cooperation can be muted, right? Yes. Likewise, competition by itself can only create so much value before you desperately need some more cooperation. But the two together, they can true each other up. So this phenomenon of interdependent polarities being dynamic engines of evolution or value creation, right? When we apply that to these major kinds of spiritual experience and spiritual practice, then we can behold this third element, right? That that's that's both and neither that that brings the the the, the two together in a way that that shows how they're so similar and that in some ways they indeed are paths to the same mountain. Yeah. But in other ways, shows how. Their teachings fly in the face of each other. Yes. And so there's this existential challenge of, well, what do you mean? Yeah, you know? Well,
0: a lot of people it, it, in the integral world are very confused by all of this. I was for many years. I still am. You know, I'm still working this out.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's the point is that we are experimenting with this yes. practice. People on my tour, very want, they, they wanted to know more yes. about how you can practice one pole with reference to the other. Absolutely. How you can practice the, 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 the black wave with reference to the white wave, you know, in the yes. yin-yang. And so we want to conduct an experiment at the incu- Integral Incubator Seminar where we take one afternoon and do a, a kind of an extensive three-hour exercise that tries to ground and apply this, um, uh, this new practice, which is coming online uh, at the integral level of practicing one pole with reference to the other. So to just to give a few examples of how one side can challenge the other. So when it comes to the self, Right A huge and, and very important practice of both uh, um, non-dual forms of, of Buddhism and you know Advaita Vedanta and other non-dual forms of Hinduism is really the dissolution of the self or the recognition that you know Atman is Brahman or that, that, that the, the self is ultimately the one true thing. And, and in that sense, our individuality is empty because we are of the nature of the whole, right. And that's you know its own robust and magnificent, kind of
0: spirituality now it's say this, that again to me this. dissolution of the self okay so what's that again so that
1: uh, th- that that is um the idea that our true spirituality lacks self nature
0: mm-hmm.
1: right that that emptiness or sunyata from a buddhist perspective no self. is is the doctrine of no self is is really uh you know Thich Nhat Hanh calls it interbeing right mm-hmm. but uh you know uh, Kitaro Nishida calls it uh, absolute nothingness. Yes. There's different ways of understanding what emptiness really means. Yes. But I think that there's pretty firm agreement that this sort of idea of, of connecting to the all one self, you know, whether it's empty or full, is is a huge kind of goal or, or direction of yes. the practice of non-duality. Right? Yes. So the way that's challenged, of course, is is on the theistic side, where our individual status as sons and daughters of the living god who can love and be loved as individuals that that's the heart of that so even though it may not we don't have to think about it in a crude way about pumping up the ego it's more about recognizing our sovereign status as real selves real real spiritual beings with souls that that you know continue so um the idea is that we think about it as that those two practices can commonly other like two legs, right So we, we dissolve the self and then we reclaim the self at a higher, more pure level. Yeah. and then there's another round in which we That's connect right. to the one and then we so Niels Bohr, the, the famous physicist, is famous for the quote that um, the opposite of a small truth is a falsehood, but the opposite of a great truth is another great truth
0: right on. So
1: the opposite of the truth that we're all one is the truth that we're all original. Yes. Both are fully spiritually true, even though they're in this interdependent polarity where they're kind of challenging each other, even as they support each other.
0: Yeah. So our souls get to continue? Did I hear you say that? Well, look,
1: I, you know, this is a practice. I don't, I don't
0: really have to die? Uh,
1: you know, we are engaged in this practice to see what can be experienced here on earth, right? <laughs> so so that's kind of the focus that that I want to, you know, keep right, it at. I mean, course. you know, there's, there's obviously theologies of an afterlife that are contained in both major schools. Non-dual Absolutely. has the idea of reincarnation, is very powerful. Yeah. Theism has the idea of life after death. So that's, you know, that, while there's certainly a, a role in this exercise of, of examining theology, um, I think one of the ways we can keep it grounded, for example, is by seeing the practices, like as another example beyond the self, the ways in which these two practices can complement each other, is the idea of um, non-dual, wise, non-attachment, right, as it's taught by Buddhism. And what you might see the opposite of that is kind of loving engagement as yes. taught by Christianity, right? And so th- that is, for a long time, I resisted this idea of, of um, wise non-attachment. You know, I thought, Why is not attachment Well, what about my son? You know, my little kid, he's, he needs all my attention. I can't be wisely not attached. I have to be extremely attached uh, and care very much about his life and, and how things turn out for him. Right. But as I've tried to integrate non-duality into my spirituality, I've come to see extremely valuable... Uh, this idea of wise non-attachment is, and how it's the perfect remedy for when you get exhausted or burned out with loving engagement. The, the fact that I can I can take a stance of wise non-attachment, and I know that that is a very stable pole of spiritual reality. I can't I can't tell you how how soothing and how yes. re- rejuvenating that has been when I grow weary or am thwarted in my attempts at loving engagement.
0: Darn right, yeah. Well, in those, those ultimate realizations of oneness on the one side of the street, the non-dual side, and the love of God on the other side, and you know all of the wonders and, uh, of, of the, the experience of those. But still you find, even in the integral world, a lot of people who really deny any ontological reality of those. I mean, it, it, there's still a lot of scientific materialism, in, certainly in the culture at large, that says that, I mean, you know, this is Sam Harris, you know, he's meditating his brains out and still, you know, there's really nothing going on there except that there's a a experience, a a higher experience that may help us get out of bed in the morning, that may help us to relate to each other in a way that's more uh, adaptive and and makes us better vehicles for our selfish genes. (laughs) But it's all an illusion or a delusion. And what do you have to say to that?
1: Well, a critique of scientific materialism, you know that's a sort of another discussion on its own. My book, my 2012 book, Evolution's Purpose, tried to um, get at uh, the sort of Darwinistic materialism that underpins um, the credibility of, of scientific materialism in the minds of many people and uh, how materialism, I think, Whitehead nailed it in the 20s where he said it's the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. <laughs> as, if, as if matter, you know, is more real than things like values yeah. or, or subjective Says personality. Yeah. yeah. But I think that that one of the important lessons of progressive spirituality is, is this pluralism, right? We're not going to try to be exclusive or or, or uh, we're trying to be as open and, and not condemn uh, other forms of spirituality we may not agree with. So the, the, if we understand all the different lineages and forms of spirituality that humans have gained spiritual experience through, as we talked about at the beginning, these are these can be understood as lines of development that grow through the stages of the spiral, right? And, and, and at the integral level, we still, I think, can retain the important accomplishments of welcoming pluralism, but we can go beyond kind of the New Age mushiness that goes with that by seeing how these lines, when they engage with each other at the level of, of their truth teachings, they can serve to challenge and true each other up. So if we're going to allow for a theistic line uh, of development within within the integral level and a non dual line, then it seems to me that that principle would allow for a, a secular or you know emergentist or or a, a line of development that carries forward some of those atheistic yeah. or materialistic impulses, and we can our, yeah. our pl- pluralism can allow them to provide a challenge too, as long as they are acting within this more, this cultural agreement of, uh, of, of, of a degree of respect for the various lines.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, they true things up too. So we could
1: talk a little bit more about how one can help illuminate the other. Okay. So, for example, you and I were talking um, a couple nights ago about um, the Buddhist proposition, you know, the, the teachings of the Buddha, you know, one of the great truths, that life is suffering, right? And um, that's certainly a, a, a spiritual truth that's been a, a touchstone for the spiritual paths of, of you know, Buddhists and, and others, for sure. Well, I guess the term is dukkha. Yes. Right? And you explained to me how in your experience of the practice of Buddhism, that the translation of the word dukkha into suffering, that um, from an integral perspective, from an evolutionary, you know, dynamic perspective, we can maybe tweak the definition of dukkha so that instead of it being suffering, maybe it's you know unsatisfactoriness.
0: Yes. Right. Yeah, that's the one of the great teachings, I think, of Chogam yeah. Trumpa, the right. great Tibetan uh, uh, Rinpoche who started the whole a Tibetan Buddhist community here. Right, right. He said it's not suffering, it's unsatisfactoriness. And you know, right. I thought it's just such a homely term, but yeah, it really does yeah. get to it.
1: Well, but from an evolutionary perspective, we can see that you know all life is an opportunity to make things better, right? And that the the the, the suffering and the trouble and the pain of the world is actually a huge blessing. It's a gift that we get to actually are born into and are recruited to help ameliorate the trouble and suffering in the world. So the fact that the world is unsatisfactory, you know, brings with it a duty and indeed um, a huge uh, opportunity to grow ourselves spiritually by overcoming, even in a small way in our little corner of the universe, both the unsatisfactoriness of ourselves, you know, our partiality and the partiality of the world. And these things are are linked, as I argue, that as, you know, we become more evolved and the world becomes more evolved as we experience and create intrinsic
0: values like beauty truth and goodness right on yeah well what fun yes and it's uh so you were going to say
1: well i mean there there, we, we could get into um you know other ways in which for example you know not only does uh the panentheistic uh challenge or or cause introspection you know within non-dual teachings clearly you know the the challenge is mutual and ways in which the non-dual i think can can help advance the, the panentheistic is by um uh this is kind of a version of the, of the truth of wise non-attachment, how while I don't, you know, I'm not ready to accept that the phenomenal world of, of the finite is a complete illusion. I mean, clearly as our consciousness evolves, we come to to see reality more clearly and clearly. So the fact that we have this, you know, relatively unevolved consciousness means the world we perceive is, of course, partially illusory. But there is also ways in which it's yeah. very real and it counts very much, and it yes. can't just be completely wisely non-attached the entire time. So, but this this teaching of of the world as uh, samsara, right, or uh, uh, you know other ways of thinking about the illusion that that although it's a challenge, it's also a way in which we it can help us, for example, in the challenge to the theism, often referred to as the problem of evil, right. So you know if there is a, a love, if the universe is loving, how come the world is so screwed up? Uh, how come there is so much pain and suffering and cruelty, right? You know, the lack of the beautiful, the true, and the good is evident, right? Almost anywhere we look. And so the fact that it is a, uh, an opportunity to make things better and that while the suffering is real and that we have a moral duty to, to do what we can to help alleviate that suffering and, you know, both politically and socially and every other way to try to make the world a better place, that when our our loving engagement Brings us into contact with suffering that just breaks our heart. You know, when we get burned out or we just can't continue, then this idea that, that there is a degree to which the world is an illusion that could be a very important tonic. Yeah. You know, that can um, that can reorient us, mm-hmm. and you know, it's it's sort of a, a truth compass. You know, that helps us. No, While we don't, we can only. You know, we can say it's true, but partial, right? It's partially illusion, and it's partially very, very real. No, it's and very, very helpful. Can, can, can work together.
0: Yeah. No, that's really so true.
1: When we're coming to ways in which one side is helping to true up the other, uh, I think th- that clearly, if we look at these as lines of development, right, uh, Christianity is especially evident in its uh, traditional level expression as having all kinds of uh, pathologies that need to be pruned away, you know, whether it's or you know this notion of original sin or hell or or uh, ex- exclusivity of of their path. But green does a good job at getting rid of most of those things. And when, by the time this, uh, you know, integral Christianity or, you know, the panentheistic version of spirituality enters the integral level, um, it doesn't need the critiques of its mythic theology. Um, but there's still ways in which, of course, it's partial, like every line of development at every stage. And I think it might be worth just tracing these lines, right? So, so both non-dual and theistic, they begin... They're kind of rooted in the traditional level, right, the amber or, or blue. And at that level, there's usually typically conflict. So, for example, in, in Hinduism, um, which is fairly evenly divided between the non-dual and, and the panentheistic, right, um, we can see uh, the ancient debates between um, the followers of Shankara, the non dualist the Advaitin, and uh, Ramanuja, who was very much a panentheist. And while those debates are a thousand years old, we can see it in the 20th century, um, in um, the differences between uh, Ramana Maharshi, right, the follower of Shankara, and Sri Aurobindo, who was very much a panentheist and had, you know, they didn't agree, although we, you know, we wouldn't want to pin either of them strictly at the traditional level. We can see how these paths are in conflict at that level, right? Mm-hmm. And, and understandably, right? Perhaps even evolutionarily appropriately. Right? Yes. Then at the modernist level, as those lines grow in, we have this global scholarship whereby uh, modernity discovers. That there is these rich traditions, right? So, in other words, even though uh, some Enlightenment philosophers were partially aware of that, that Buddhism was a very sophisticated religion, the translations weren't very good. There wasn't a, a globalized culture where people could go and study Buddhism in residence, you know, in Asia. But in the 20th century, through extensive scholarship and translation, at the modernist level, primarily the the, the rich. Um, intellectual foundations of these two major paths of the non-dual and the theistic were sort of illuminated more clearly than ever before, and, and we could see that. Oh, look! There are really these two, you know, major kinds. Although perhaps each kind is a cluster of lines, not a singular line. But mm-hmm. but nevertheless, we began to actually have enough data that we could see the picture more clearly, thanks to modernity. Right then at the postmodern level or green level, as spirituality is kind of rediscovered and and reclaimed at the postmodern progressive spiritual uh, culture. There's this pluralism, which we talked about. But as I argue in the presence of the infinite, there's also a way in which progressive spirituality over the last 50 years, as it's come to maturation, has come to favor the non-dual, I think for evolutionarily appropriate reasons, right? It's trying to reclaim spirituality in ways that do not regress To the mythic level of the Judeo-Christian heritage of Western civilization, but rather the non-dual is sort of, you know, in the West especially, it hasn't been fully developed. So this is a a tremendous evolutionary opportunity
0: to bring it. Well, it's something that atheists can practice. It's somebody, you know, if somebody's at the secular orange level, you can practice Buddhism. You can't really practice Christianity. Sure, you know, yeah, and so you know, it, it it is the next sort of. Escalator, we take up to the next floor.
1: Yes, and yeah. I've enjoyed reading. I, I'm a reader of both Shambhala Sun and Tricycle, you know, the mm-hmm. two Buddhist magazines. And uh, Stephen Batchelor, I guess, he's the most prominent, um, you know, Buddhist atheist gets a lot of ink in yeah. those publications. Sure, yeah. but it's also great to see, you know, the authentic uh, Buddhist teachers, both Zen and Tibetan, push back against atheistic Buddhism and say, no, you know, Buddhism may not be theistic, but it's not atheistic, right? You know, and so that's that's it's interesting. It's uh, non-theistic, <laughs> right? Um, but, you know, again, that there, there, there is, we can see not only in Hinduism, it's split down the middle between the panentheism and the non dual, but would also, you know, Buddhism, which is mostly non dual, also has its theistic expression in uh, Pure Land Buddhism, yeah. right?
0: Um, there's but also, also in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, they, they have the, you know, of course, there's a lot of deity practice, but, right. but also even the, the, the doctrine of Buddha nature, mm. where it's not quite God, but there's a loving creativity, not even, forget loving. But there's a creativity. There's something that's built into the universe that is fertile and creative, and you know it's it's often represented as a great cervix, actually, in right. Tibetan Buddhism. Sure. And you know it's getting right up next to personal Buddha nature. Yes. But not quite there.
1: Well, and I've also enjoyed reading with, from within Buddhism the harsh critiques of Buddha nature. You know, uh, like yes, you're trying course, to, yes, you know, it's totally. not, people. People are not familiar with Buddhist you know, intellectual thinking, yeah. often assume that Buddha nature is just a part of Buddhism. Yeah. But it's a very controversial it's a, yeah, part absolutely. that's recently been added and that has got a lot of pushback within the Buddhist community. Um, so yeah. Buddha nature, it's cool, but it's not universal within Buddhism. I, I like it, but, you know, I'm trying to integrate. Um, and, and within Christianity, it's worth mentioning that while Christianity, um, even in its most intellectual expressions, is, of course, primarily theistic, there are um, mystics and, and non-dualists uh, both contemporary and historical, uh, who have found a non-dual path and advanced a non-dual version of Christianity. The most famous being, um, you know, Meister Eckhart, right, of the of the medieval period. So, so these different uh, lines of development contained within them. You know, the, the white wave still has the black dot, you know, and vice versa in this sort of yin yang symbol. But you know, one of the beautiful things about integral or evolutionary spirituality is that uh, we can see these teachings, these practices, these attractor basins of spiritual experience as lines of evolution. And the most exciting thing is not only can we participate in these lines, we can also do the historically, I think, new, we can pursue the new opportunity of trying to integrate them, you know, using the integral technology of, of the philosophical understanding of interdependent polarities as engines of evolution. So it's a, you know, it's it's not only an opportunity for our own um Further self-actualization by engaging um, this practice uh, of, of of practicing one pole with reference to the other, um, but it's a way in which we can actually further the evolution of culture.
0: Right on. The work continues.
1: Indeed, and we uh, hope that folks who are listening may consider uh, coming to the Integral Incubator seminar this August. Um, the website <clears throat> is integralincubator.org, uh, and I we should mention that the the Integral Incubator was the Title of a seminar that you and Ross and Namali Pereira, Ross Hostetter and Namali Pereira did, um, where it was a um, a project of of a traditional like a business incubator, right? Yes. You know, you brought your business plan or your film project, and and the workshop was about developing that project, right, with integral input. And this is not that, right? right. We're we're using the term incubator. Last year we called it the integral escalator, but we liked it so much, and the the um, the. Uh, uh, feedback, you know, the little uh, anonymous uh, comments that we got from people were universally positive and you and I had a lot of fun working together. And we found we have a nice synergy in, yes. in a seminar uh, environment. So we're doing it again and we're, we're upgrading the name to what we think is a better name, Integral Incubator, but it's not about your business plan. It's about incubating your consciousness. That's
0: right. And again, at the Integral Center, uh, August 18th through 21st. And you can find out more at integralincubator.org. All right. Well, thank you so much, Steve McIntosh. Thank you, Jeff. Always a pleasure. And thank you all for listening. Take care.